Please take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. It is good to gather together. It's good to look into the Word of God together. It's good to have the body of Christ, and we do give thanks to you for your support and encouragement of us and for your care of us. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide us this morning into your Word by your Holy Spirit to accomplish your purpose. And I ask that you would enable me to speak in such a way as to give you glory and honor and praise. I pray that our hearts would be encouraged and strengthened, that we'd be edified together. I pray as well that you would place within us a desire, a longing to do the will of our Heavenly Father. Enable us by your Spirit to do the will of our Heavenly Father. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. After two weeks away from it, today we return to the series Essentials of the Faith. This is Essentials of the Faith, part 11. We have worked our way through the first three in the past ten messages. Mind you, we spent a lot of time talking about the adage, unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and love in all things. Nonetheless, we have been trying to work our way through the essentials of the faith, and it was intended to be a superficial or a light overview of the truths that we affirm to be so, to be true. We have spent a little bit more time than I would say just a superficial overview, and we will continue to do that. The reason why we've been spending as much time here is because it is important for us to know what we believe as a congregation and also as individual believers. It's important. It is important because this is what we are united in. These are the truths that we hold together. It is important because we should know why we believe what we believe. And I pray that you are coming to understand that more fully as we work through this. But I want to stress that theology or beliefs, though they are essential, though they are important, though they are pivotal, though they are absolute, though they are necessary, all of these things, if we only give them mental assent, they become irrelevant. If it is only mental assent. The truth of the Word of God was not given for our information alone, but to transform us. It must have practical, actual impact upon our lives. If it does not do that, then what we say we believe, we don't truly believe. That is particularly true of the statement of faith that I'm going to look at, that we are going to look at this morning. It is about salvation. Remember, the devil knows who Jesus Christ is and believes in him in the sense that he believes the truths of him and yet obviously is not saved. He knows everything that you know about salvation except for the practical application of it. As far as the facts, he knows more than you know. And that is where we differ between facts and applying those facts or a life being transformed by them. Martin Luther said, the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a Savior. It is quite another thing to say he is my Savior and my Lord. The devil can say the first. The true Christian alone can say the second. So this morning, I want to establish what we believe about salvation, why we believe it from the Word of God, and I also want us to bring it home, so to speak, in application. This is a statement of faith that we affirm that we'll be looking at this morning. The salvation of lost, so we could say we affirm... The salvation of lost and sinful people through the shed blood of Jesus Christ by faith, apart from works, and the regeneration by the Holy Spirit. 
We believe, we affirm, this is true, the salvation of lost and sinful people through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, by faith apart from works, and the regeneration by the Holy Spirit. The word salvation means rescued or delivered. We understand that it can be used in different ways, such as temporal or physical ways. You could say they were saved from a flood or the life raft was their salvation. However, when it is used in the Word of God, it is speaking almost exclusively of spiritual salvation, which makes sense because that is the greatest salvation and is a vital theme of the Word of God for us. And our eternal destiny hangs upon understanding and having applied the saving blood of Jesus Christ. It is essential. A narrow definition of salvation spiritually could be this. The redemption of man from the bondage of sin and its consequences of eternal death and the conferring upon him or giving to him everlasting joy. In a broad sense, salvation is that all-inclusive word of the gospel. It gathers together in itself all of these words, justification, redemption, grace, propitiation, imputation, forgiveness, sanctification, glorification, all of those things are covered under that one theme, that one title of salvation. We talk about different aspects of it, and we actually like to break it down into time frames as well. This is what happened then, this is what happened now, this is what's going to happen eventually, and that makes sense. We are justified by faith. The moment you trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, you are declared righteous. Justification. Right now, we're in the process of sanctification. That is, God is making us like Jesus Christ. He's making us holy. And one day, we look forward to that day of glorification. And it gets really confused because sometimes these future things are also present tense things. Sometimes these present tense things are also future things. And it's all covered in this theme, this topic of salvation. It is important to remember as well that in speaking of salvation, it does have even in the term, the idea of itself of salvation, a past, present, and a future. When you trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you were forgiven and set free from the penalty of sin. Today, as you walk in obedience to Jesus Christ, you are being delivered or set free from, you're being saved from the power of sin. And one day, when you meet Jesus Christ face to face, you'll be glorified, you'll be set free from even the presence of sin. There is past, present, and future aspects of salvation. It's interesting that even as I define those past, present, and future aspects, the understanding is that it is sin and the consequence of that sin that we are being saved from, that we are being set free from, which makes sense because Jesus came to save sinners. He came to set us free from our sin. So I want to take this morning and I want to look at that statement. I want to divide it into four parts. And I'll present each part in a point form, if I can. The salvation of lost and sinful people through the shed blood of Jesus Christ by faith, apart from works, and regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Four major points in that statement, which is why we're going to be going to Ephesians, because Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 speak a lot. I was going to say exhaustively, but that's not exhaustive, about salvation. But it is one of the preeminent passages when it comes to salvation. I see in our statement of faith, though, these four points. Salvation is extended to the lowest. Salvation is paid for by the highest. Salvation is granted without merit. And salvation is accomplished by the Spirit. So the first one, salvation is extended to the lowest. That takes us to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to kind of bounce around in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, but we'll take it and we'll read sections at a time as they pertain to the points. So starting in verse 1, it says, And you he made alive in the New King James. Now, If you're reading in your Bible and you see a portion of a verse that is in italics, there's 
That means that it's given so that we would have a fuller or proper understanding. Now here, where it says, he made alive, that actually comes in later. But if you read that sentence, because if I'm correct, verse 1 through the end of verse 3 is all one sentence. And you need a little bit in there to help you make sense of it. At least I do anyways. But we could take that out of there this morning, because it is added in, it's italicized. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, this is everyone, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the principle of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And we'll pause there. Salvation is extended to the lowest. If we remove he made alive, which comes later, praise God for that, What are you left with in verse 1 to 3? You, every person ever born, dead in trespass and sins, walking according to the course of this world. That means going your own way, independent of God, rebelling against God, following Satan. That's the prince of the power of the air. That is who your Lord is, naturally. Living according to the lusts of the flesh, it says, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, so not controlling your own passions. And it says, lastly, Children of wrath, that is, that you were under the righteous anger of God. Quite the description, not very attractive. It's to the lowest, salvation is to the lowest, to the lost and the sinner. Our statement of faith says that we are lost and sinful people. We are the lowest. Romans tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. We've all gone astray. That's an apt description of us. Paul describes himself as the worst of all sinners. Paul also describes himself as wretched in Romans. After he talks about this inner conflict between his spirits and the flesh, where in the flesh he wants to do what is wicked, and he finds himself doing what is wicked. In the spirit he wants to do what is right and what is true and what pleases God. He says, O wretched man that I am, decrepit man that I am, who shall set me free from this body of sin? Praise God, in Jesus Christ I am set free. But here, in the natural description of ourselves, it's not Attractive. It's not appealing. It is dead and decaying and decrepit. Our standing is rebellious and angry at God. It is often dismissive of the one we were created to be in relationship with. This is who we, by nature, are. Sin entered the world in Adam and was passed on through Adam to everyone so that everyone born is born under sin in rebellion against God. That is our natural standing. But praise God, salvation has been extended to you. Salvation, it has come, it is for the lost, it is for the sinner. We see in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The first three verses, this is who you are and it's not attractive, but God intervened because God's desire, God's delight is to save lost sinners. Luke chapter 19 verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Salvation is for lost. 
and sinful people. No one is beyond God's salvation, his reach of salvation. No one is. He came to save sinners. Now, by that, I do not mean that everyone will be saved. But he came to save that which we would consider to be without hope, because we are all without hope, without Christ. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Every one of us was lost. Every one of us is a sinner. And there's no much, no such thing. We get this idea that there's someone who's more lost than somebody else who's lost. There's no such thing as someone who's more lost than another person. You're either lost or you're not lost. We even do that with sin. And we say, this person is far more of a sinner, and there is some truth to that, but that would infer that some people are less lost and some people are not as bad as sinner. Making comparisons about lostness or sinfulness of humans is like pouring a cup of water into the ocean versus a drop of water into the ocean and saying you've put more in. Sure you have. But not in comparison with the entire ocean. Saying that you're closer to God or that you're more good, that there is more goodness in you, that you're less lost is like saying, okay, I'm standing in the lowest gutter on earth and I'm looking up at a star. And a guy who's standing on Everest is standing on Everest looking up at the star and he's closer. Sure. But it doesn't make, it, it doesn't make sense that we would even go that direction, right? It doesn't make, it's, it's, there's no comparison. The vastness of the distance. And, and so we look at the vastness of the holiness of God and we conclude all are lost, all are sinners. And Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. He came to save sinners. Salvation is extended to the lowest. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it goes on teaching, that, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live righteously, soberly, and justly in this present age. And that's not saying that all will be saved, but there is none who is so lost they could not be saved. There is none who is so wicked they could never be saved. God delights to save the lost and the sinner. And praise God he did. For if he had not, we would not be saved. As far as application to that, give God thanks that he saved a wretch like you. And it doesn't hurt occasionally to recognize your sinfulness, not in this self-deprecating way, not in this to, to destroy yourself and your standing in Jesus Christ, but simply to acknowledge that we are all, apart from the grace of God, desperately wicked and evil and bound for hell. That is who we are. But God, who is rich in mercy. Salvation is extended to the lowest, even you. It's extended to you and I. Salvation is paid for by the highest. It has been offered to the lowest sinner, yet at great cost, to the Savior, to the highest Savior, at the highest cost. It is through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In him that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. We are redeemed, we are bought back through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is free, that is salvation is, yet the cost was so high. It was purchased by the life of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, and Hebrews has a lot to say about the shedding of blood and about the high priest and the sacrifice, but chapter 9, verse 11 to 14 says, Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats, the blood of bulls, it could not satisfy. It was temporary. It, was for the, it says the purifying of the flesh temporarily. 
And it says, if that would work temporarily, how much more shall the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, that will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It is in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Salvation is paid for by the highest. It was with his own blood that he obtained eternal redemption for all those who would trust in him. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers, but you were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. First Peter 1 tells us the price, the price is the highest. It was paid by the highest. It has been paid for you. The just wrath of God had to be satisfied. And Jesus Christ laid down his life in our place to satisfy that wrath. He died so that we would not have to bear that wrath of God against us. He died to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. Only the pure spotless lamb of God could do that. And Jesus Christ, that spotless lamb, willingly did so. Yes, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he said those words after that, not my will, but yours be done. He submitted and he bore in his body the punishment for our sin. He submitted to the Father's plan, this righteous plan of salvation. He submitted and he permitted his lifeblood to be shed for you and me. Can you fathom that? Jesus Christ literally, not just theoretically, not just philosophically, but Jesus Christ literally bled for you. He actually died in flesh for you and for me. God incarnate gave his earthly life, his his body. And it wasn't just that physical aspect of death either, as, as horrendous as that might be, and we tend to focus on that a little bit, but the spiritual aspect. Why? Because in his death, he became, he was the sacrifice for sin. That means he bore on his in his body our sin. Christ took our sin upon himself. The physical death, the beating, the whipping, all of this would have been excruciating. And yet the burden that Christ bore was sin. The highest sacrifice. Salvation has been paid by the highest. Salvation is granted without merit. Point number three. Having observed and considered our hopeless and helpless estate as wretched sinners, even just briefly, and God's glorious grace in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we affirm that salvation is freely offered. It is freely offered to all those who will own him as Lord and Savior. There is nothing that we can do to earn or to merit salvation. If we could earn it, if there was some way we could better ourselves to get approval of salvation, it would not be of grace. It would be of works then. The depth of our sin can never be remedied by anything that we can do, but it has already been remedied in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The unattainable price for us has already been attained. It has been paid in Jesus Christ. And so we must respond in faith. Salvation, it is by faith apart from works. The salvation of lost and sinful people through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, by faith, apart from works, and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. That takes us back to Ephesians chapter 2. 
In verse 8 it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By grace we have been saved through faith. Salvation is all about grace. Salvation must be about grace. There is no means of salvation except the grace of God as demonstrated in Jesus Christ. You cannot merit grace. You cannot earn grace. And you cannot earn your way into heaven. It is God's grace and God's grace alone. And it is a free gift of God, costly to him, but free to you and I. That doesn't mean that it doesn't come with cost or without cost. Absolutely. We are to lay down our lives and follow Jesus Christ. But we'll count that cost as nothing when we consider what he is offering us in Jesus Christ. This gift of grace is free. God's grace is applied to us as we trust him. It is applied through faith. We believe him, and not in that theoretical way about believing a fact about him, but we own it, and we submit our lives to that truth or to those truths We recognize and believe and accept, acknowledge that we're sinners. Accept that we can't save ourselves. Accept that his blood was shed in my place. And we cast ourselves upon him. We submit ourselves to him. Charles Spurgeon said, The essence of faith lies in this, a casting oneself on the promise. What God has said is true. It's casting myself upon that promise. It is as simple and as complex as that. Faith is believing that he will do just as he has promised to do. Christ has promised that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we call upon the name of the Lord. We we cry out to him. We say, rescue me, save me, forgive me, redeem me. However you want to word it, where you yield. And you say, God, take over. Take control. I surrender. I submit. And I thank you. Forgive me and cleanse me for sin. Set me free from it. Enable me to walk pleasing to you. What about the experience of that? Does experience have a part in that? Well, sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Same with a feeling. What about a feeling? Is there a feeling in salvation? Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Both of them are not just secondary, but they're way down the line in comparison with faith, though. By grace, through faith. And part of that faith that casts yourself upon the mercy, upon the grace of God, is also faith that believes he will do what he has said he will do, whether I can experience it or whether I have a feeling that comes at the moment that that takes place. Once a man told D.L. Moody that he was worried because he did not feel saved. And Moody asked him, was Noah safe in the ark? Certainly was, the man replied. Well, what made him safe, his feeling or the ark? It's not the feeling. God is able to save to the utmost regardless of our feeling or our experience. That does not make feeling or experience wrong. Just make sure faith comes first. Faith, fact, feeling, in that order. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 is a good breakdown, particularly of this idea, this understanding that we have of faith, of salvation being by faith. In Romans chapter 3, it says this in verse 21. Now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, he's been dealing a lot with the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the law and the prophets show the righteousness of God. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely, it is free, by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God set forth as a propitiation. That means a satisfying sacrifice. God set him forth as a sacrifice that met his requirements by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, in other words, God's is putting up with us, uh, God had passed over sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier, the one who declares the believer innocent, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is to all and on all who believe. It is given freely by grace. It is the work of God's righteousness that enables him to be just and us justified. That is, that God can rightly look at a sinner and declare him innocent, not because he became innocent, but because Jesus Christ paid the price for that, and therefore that sinner is innocent. It is by faith. Powerfully put here. Salvation. You cannot earn it. You cannot merit it. By grace, through faith, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. Fourthly, salvation is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. It says at the end of our statement there, it is by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. When we respond in faith to God's grace, we are declared righteous. That is, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is applied to the believing sinner. That is the work that the Holy Spirit does. He is the one who brings you into the family of Christ. Uh, he is the one who does that spiritual work of immersing you in Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It is the Holy Spirit who, who does the work of indwelling you and making you part of the body of Christ. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 to 14, it says, In him that is in Jesus Christ also, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined. And don't get caught up in that word predestined. I'll explain it in a second being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. In other words, God predetermined something that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. That's what predestination is about there. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also you, having believed, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. There's a lot in there. Don't get caught up in the big words. God has predetermined that everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ will praise God. Our salvation is to the praise of his glory. When we heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of salvation, we trusted in Jesus Christ, and I pray that you have. And having believed it, we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is, his stamp was put upon us, saying, this one belongs to Jesus Christ. This one is mine. And the Holy Spirit just didn't do it as an external stamp, but the Holy Spirit came and indwelt all those who trust in Jesus Christ. That's why it says he is a guarantee that we will one day be fully redeemed. The Holy Spirit is a deposit that is placed in our life, awaiting the day when it will be cashed. We'll be redeemed fully. This is his work. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the work of salvation of the believing sinner. And the Holy Spirit is the one who comes as a guarantee that that work will be completed in every believing sinner. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, 
We have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, Titus chapter 3 tells us. It is the Holy Spirit who purifies us in the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who makes us new in Jesus Christ. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit, and it is the Holy Spirit who guarantees our one-day glorification with Jesus Christ. Salvation is by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That's the four points, and that's a lot to cover in one sitting. I realize that salvation is extended to the lowest. Salvation is paid for by the highest. Salvation is granted without merit. And salvation is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. We affirm the salvation of lost and sinful people through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, by faith, apart from works, and regeneration by the Holy Spirit. What a glorious statement that that is. Not just because it contains powerful theoretical truths, but because of the reality that God is still rescuing lost and sinful people such as you and I. Praise God for that. All those who hear and believe the good news, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a glorious statement because Christ purchased our salvation with his blood. We could not. But the perfect sacrifice has been made. He gave himself to pay the penalty of sin. It is a glorious statement because we understand how we can now approach God. It is by faith. There is no other way. Nothing you can do to approach God except for trust what he has already done. It's a glorious work. It is a glorious truth because this is a work of the Holy Spirit. That he takes the repentant, believing sinner and makes him alive or her alive in Jesus Christ. It is not a work you can muster up. It's not a work you can decide, okay, today, or looking forward, that two minutes before I die, I'm going to make that decision and follow Jesus Christ. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. You can't dictate that. You can't control that. Today is a day of salvation, though, and he's calling to all. These are glorious truths. These are beautiful truths. These are wonderful truths. Rubber meets the road. Has God accomplished that glorious work in you? Have you seen, have you acknowledged, yes, I was lost and sinful, or I am, maybe even this morning, I am lost. That is, I'm separated from God. I'm sinful. As Ephesians said, I'm dead in trespasses. That is, I cannot know God because God is holy and I am full of sin and desperately wicked. Do you own that as a truth? And have you seen that God in mercy reached down an incredible mercy and grace, so much so that God himself became flesh to die, to pay the price for sin, so that he could buy us back, us horrible, wretched sinners who were separated of our own choice and of our nature, absolutely, but were separated, that he would die to, to purchase us back, to pay the price so that we would be, could be set free from the penalty of that sin, that we wouldn't have to bear it. Do you see that truth and understand that truth and and then cast yourself upon Jesus Christ. His blood was shed for you. You can't earn that. But you can trust it. You can believe it. And if you, you're uncertain about that, or you're questioning about that, then you know what the best thing to do is? Ask him to help you to believe. Ask him to help you to trust. Ask him to explain it to you. To make it make sense. Beyond just theoretical, but actual. 
And even in so doing, I believe that God is great enough to reach out to you in mercy and grace and salvation. That the work of the Holy Spirit is going to begin being accomplished in you. Because what you're doing is yielding. And that's what he's asking of us. To surrender. To say, Lord, take me and do with me as you please. I, I, I don't understand this. I may not get it, but I trust. And I want to trust that your blood has been shed for me, that you died in my place. And trust that the one who can save you, and he will save you. That's a beautiful thing. This is, to some people, an ancient text. That's antiquated. It's out of date. It has nothing to do with my life. Let me tell you, it has everything to do with our life. Jesus Christ is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Today is the day of salvation. It's amazing that he printed that in the Word of God. They didn't say today and have the date there. <laughs> but he said today so that every time anyone reads it in this age of grace, it's saying today is a day of salvation. Today is a day of salvation. This moment is a moment of salvation. Respond in faith. Trust the one who died for you. And trust that the one who died for you is more than able to keep you as well. This work of the Holy Spirit of bringing you into the body of Christ, of making you one with Jesus Christ and one of, of the church universal, that this spirit is able to guard, to keep, to maintain, to secure, and to one day, as that guarantee, to present us faultless before God the Father, saying, this is the one that I put my stamp upon too. This is one that I indwelt. This is one of yours. Praise God for his glorious work of salvation. If you have applied that, you understand it, you are walking in Jesus Christ, then the next application is, if you've got it, start giving it out. If you've got it, start giving it away. God has accomplished this glorious work of salvation within you. If you know it to be true, then we ought to be going and sharing it, preaching it to every person, trusting, believing by faith that God is still in the business of saving lost and sinful people. The salvation of lost and sinful people through the shed blood of Jesus Christ by faith apart from works and regenerating by the Holy Spirit. Don't leave this theological statement on the shelf. It was never intended to be there. Take it as one desperate wretch who has found mercy and share it with other desperate wretches who desperately need to find the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you not just for good doctrinal statements, but for the fact that they are founded upon your word, and your word is truth. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from separating a statement of faith from your word. We realize that creeds and statements of faith are good and valuable, and they're important. But it is of no value if it is not from your word. And we thank you that the truth we have looked at today, Lord, we have seen in your word. There is no doubt of this statement of faith according to your word. May we trust your word, and may we actually go and apply your word to the world around us that so desperately needs to hear it. Your word even says, how will they be saved unless they hear? How will they hear unless someone is sent? And speaking of sending, of preachers, of every believer being a preacher, not from a pulpit, but from their life, from their lips, in their work, in their sphere of influence. Lord, as we have trusted you, I ask that you would cause us to go and to demonstrate that trust and confidence in you in sharing the gospel, the good news of salvation.
forgive us so often for putting this in the statement of faith and leaving it there on a shelf. We ask that you would radically transform our lives so that what we believe would come out of our lives, would pour forth from our lives, especially in this area of God's grace and mercy extended to lost and sinful people. Give us a compassion, a burden for the lost. May we see them through your eyes. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.